0: Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis, and I am joined, as usual, by Sarah Baejung of Bowdoin College. Sarah, how are you surviving what I imagine is a frigid northern climate?
1: It, it, not as bad as it, it has been or likely is going to be. It's actually quite a beautiful day outside right now. But yes, I'm you know, doing quite cool. well. Thank you, Panel.
0: And I am joined also by Harvey Young of Northwestern University. Harvey, are you in the waning days of the fall quarter? Yes, we are down to our last week. We are, too. I taught... No, I teach my last class tomorrow afternoon, which is very exciting. And... Listeners, we are also very excited to be joined by a special guest for this edition of the podcast, Henry Bile, professor of theater at University of Kansas, director of the School of the Arts there. Recently, I understand, uh, named associate dean of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. Hi, Henry. Welcome to On Tap.
2: Hi, it's great to be here. I've been a fan of you guys uh, really since the first episode, so I'm really excited to be joining you.
0: Um, We are very excited to have you guest on this episode in in, in the inaugural fourth chair. So you will be with us through the entire uh, episode, which is super exciting. Many of you will know Henry. um, He's the author most recently of Playing God, The Bible on the Broadway Stage, which came out in 2015 from Michigan and uh, won the 2016 Frick Award from the American Theater and Drama Society. Congrats, Henry. Thank you. And he also is the editor of the Performance Studies Reader put out by Routledge, three editions of that very important text in our field. He is past president of Atha. Um, I could go on and on. Uh, But we were excited to have Henry in on this episode, partly because of the segments that we wanted to talk about. Today we're going to talk about theater studies versus performance studies in 2016. We have gone and reviewed um, some important statements on this defining cohabitation, this defining intellectual formation in the field. We looked at Richard Schechner's New Paradigm talk from Atha, I think in 1990, and, and a few other texts. We looked at Stephen J. Bottom's article, The Efficacy, Effeminacy, Braid, at any rate, we wanted to check in on the state of the field. Secondly, we're going to talk about taps in the age of Trump. We have all been processing an extremely disorienting and, uh, speaking personally, upsetting result in American electoral politics, but this has implications for our field, and there have been responses to the election in the near term that we can talk about, and also a sort of uh, broader question about what, what, if any, changes to the bearings of our research, our teaching, our service this news brings with it. We looked at Elisa Solomon's article, "Arts Criticism in the Times of Trump," which was published um, in July by TDR and was a talk given a year ago during the primary season when Trump was not even the major car- major party nominee but it's a present almost prophetic article and then finally we're going to talk about metrics statistics academic administrative tools for evaluating what we do and the significance of the increasing use of things like Google Scholar and other uh, statistical measurement tools to evaluate academic productivity. Before we get to those segments, uh, we have a couple of items in the news roundup. Not very many news items, but a couple of very big ones. Uh, The University of Chicago has announced that it is now accepting applications for a new interdisciplinary PhD program in theater and performance studies. Uh, The flyer is online. It's been going around social media. This was something that I think many of us knew was in the works, and it's an exciting development. A new PhD program from a very well respected research university in Chicago. I don't know what have you guys heard about this. Anything that hasn't been shared online?
1: Well, we chatting with uh, John Muse a little bit at uh, at Astor this year. He sort of outlined some of the broad uh, strokes of the program and what they're looking for. What's What's interesting is that it's a it's a interdisciplinary program. So you actually apply. My understanding is you apply first to uh, another. Existing doctoral program, and then you make a second application, and then if accepted, you make a second application to link that to the Theater and Performance Studies program, which could yield some incredible projects and, and a, a really interesting pedagogical model. I do wonder. I would find this unbelievably intimidating—a program to apply to. Uh, I think it sounds really challenging, but I think also we'll have. I think could yield some really great stuff coming out of it.
0: I mean, there's a phenomenal faculty there. It is a sort of joint PhD program. This is the way that Brown University was when I first started my graduate studies there, which was that you could get a PhD in theater and performance if you were um, joint with uh, another department. And because University of Chicago, I believe, does not have a department of theater or performance studies, I think that's probably part of the reason for that. But yes, exciting research coming from UChicago in the future, I'm very sure. The other big news item that I wanted to announce, um, Terrell Alvin McCraney is the new or will be the new uh, chair of playwriting at Yale replacing Paula Vogel. McCraney wrote The Brother-Sister Plays and In Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue, which is of course the basis for the very well-regarded film Moonlight. Um, He's a past winner of the MacArthur Fellowship in 2013. So this is an exciting announcement about the, the future of a very important playwriting program in the field. So with that, why don't we open up discussion on our first topic, theater studies versus performance studies. As I said in the intro, we read a couple of the most memorable statements on this cohabitation, on the two major intellectual formations that define the field and that are enshrined in uh, department titles and titles of things like this podcast, theater, and performance. You know, I personally was thinking of this at Aster in November in Minneapolis, because at least the the best attended plenary that I went to was the one that featured Rebecca Schneider and Peggy Phelan and it was about performance studies and the evolution of performance studies and it occurred to me that here we were at Astor, and this plenary about performance studies seemed to be the main event. I guess to put a provocative question forward to you Harvey in two thousand sixteen, what's the state of this balance? Has performance studies utterly changed uh, the way that theater studies is carried out
3: in higher education and has it marginalized theater? No, I don't think it's marginalized theater. My take on this is it sort of, it basically begins as a as a reflection on my own graduate career like as a graduate student, and we were all graduate students. generally generally around the same time there was an energy and a thrall to performance studies as this potentially new discipline right and it was the anti-discipline discipline discipline that was going to inspire universities around the world to create their own standalone performance studies departments that were not going to be theater departments right and I think that as we fast forward 15-20 years what we're seeing now is that that didn't come to pass right there are not a lot more performance studies departments than there were 15, 18, 20 years ago, uh, instead we're seeing an embrace of performance sort of methodologies in a, in a broader sense within theater departments, right? So you're seeing an embrace of anti-cultural, intercultural performance, you're seeing an embrace of devisings, more specifically, you're seeing an embrace of ethnography as part of everyday theater training. You know, so I think that what's occurring is just a broader tool set within within theater studies as opposed to its own standalone discipline that people either were excited about or were fearful of 15 years ago. What do you think?
0: You know, I I have a lot of mixed takes on this and, you know, I'm sort of interested in hearing how you guys respond to the idea that as performance studies methodologies, critical tools, etc., have expanded that, the the study of theater theater history dramatic literature has been attenuated partly and i'm not saying that this is what i think but partly because when you talk to theater historians scholars who are interested in various pockets of theater history i think that they they i have heard expression of some sort of like bewilderment at how much at least the major conferences in the field now seem to be featuring work that is detached from theater You know, I have takes on this, but I think that at the very least, there are many people who feel that there's less space, less time and energy being spent on dramatic literature and theater history. So I don't think there's any sort of intrinsic reason why performance studies would exclude theater, but there's certainly a perception that that shift has happened.
2: Well, I don't think that this is happening at the curricular level, not by a long shot. I think if you look at particularly undergraduate programs, but graduate programs as well, the theater studies has proven significantly more robust than that. And uh, we haven't stopped teaching theater history or dramatic literature, and we certainly haven't stopped producing plays and training actors and some of the other things that Schechner was a little snippy about back in 1993. Mm -hmm. Uh, In part, I think this is because we're seeing a shift in the academy in general away from the humanities and towards more pre-professional training and in part because as pre-professional training the content explosion of the last 10 years or so makes a theater degree frankly more valuable as professional training than it has been in a while. Um, There's just a lot more outlets for that kind of creative activity and a lot more ways to make a living as a, a theater artist.
1: I, I think that's right. What I see is that it's really, um, and I think we're emblematic of this as well. Is really the the sort of art of the ampersand, right? Which is this kind of yes and approach to to the field in which different departments are going to follow different paths depending on who their constituencies are and you know what what the sort of student demand is. Um, I think if anything, it's there's a real break between the way that theater and performance studies happen in in actual classrooms and departments versus how they circulate as terminology and kind of moving what I would call like floating objects of study in in academic conferences and, and in scholarly publications, right, where I think there's a much more expansive, broader uh, engagement with lots of different kinds of activities. And that makes sense just because, you know, every journal is... It has a certain limited number of pages in it. Every conference has a little limited number of sessions. So as you introduce more performance studies or a broader array, you are necessarily going to have fewer of the things that were taking up those those that space before. But I don't know that it, I feel like it's had a radiating, reshaping effect uh, throughout the field in displacing theater studies.
0: Yeah, I, I think that dis- the distinction between you know, the curricu- the way curricula are constructed, the way that conference sessions are apportioned, the way that articles in journals are apportioned. These happen in very different ways. And I think those three things are all different from a kind of subjective impression that scholars have about one's own marginal position in the field. I think rereading Stephen Bottoms, I, th- I realized that I may have gotten in my own head from... David Savern through Stephen Bottoms this idea that the real difference between performance studies and theater studies is that performance studies is just too cool for theater. So that when when performance studies was in high school, performance studies was outside smoking, wearing black, talking <laughs> talking about Nietzsche, and theater studies was inside At the learning the Lambeth party. walk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, learning a a really bad version of a of a dance number for an extremely dorky musical.
1: I have a question that, about you know, that panel. Uh, uh, this, like this whole, but this whole. Um, I mean, and I guess for everybody, but you know, rereading. You know, I mean, Steve's piece is pretty is 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 pretty strong, and it recycles a lot of pretty inflammatory, I would say, you know, rhetoric. You know, uh, twenty you know twenty plus years on, I I don't necessarily feel like that distinction holds up in the current. Moment, uh, but I was wondering, you know, what other people's takes were on, you know, the really very explicit homophobia and and anti-feminine, right? It wasn't just that theater wasn't cool. It's that it wasn't cool because it was gay and it wasn't cool because it was effeminate. And so I'm just wondering, you know, is that just something that's just totally archaic and gone now or? You you
0: know, I think But my take on that was that I was present as a very young graduate student at the Atha session, which was the sort of closing redressive process of the social drama of that article in which Richard Schechner basically conceded like, yes, you're right, Stephen Bottoms. Like this is this rhetoric is not all right. And it came out of, you know, a sort of insensitivity. Now, I'm wildly paraphrasing, but in my mind that there there was a kind of Victor Turner, Van Gennep-esque Moment in which the, I don't know, errant uh, child was brought before the audience and, and made to account for this stuff. So I don't know that that, I feel like that critique is really powerful. That that article is so good. I don't know that I still think of performance studies as being this kind of invested in a kind of hyper-masculine cult of potency that, you know, effeminizes theater studies. I do think there is a kind of coolness that performance studies is able to affect, that theater studies has to sort of, you know, try to get a a bit of here and there, but can't really pull off.
2: Well, what I think well, uh, Bottoms is calling the repulsion from theater in performance studies is more a kind of a ritual separation of its own. That is, uh, performance studies is saying, you know, I don't want to be a rabbi, I want to be a jazz singer. And <laughs> that uh, and I think that because performance studies is still hasn't really penetrated let's say the k-12 market that a lot of students <laughs> yeah. and graduate students rehearse or reperform that ritual rebellion and that's mm-hmm. why there's a kind of a perpetual we're too cool that kind of keeps mm-hmm. recycling uh, with each generation
1: yeah. or they don't in which case you know you you have a perpetual you know performance studies as a perpetual subculture. Right in in you know reaction formation to, to 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 dominant theater culture and I and I think that's exactly right right no guidance counselor is is looking at colleges for high school students saying so so performance studies like here are the programs where you really want to you know focus
3: right and, and I think you know as 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 both Sarah and Henry were saying you know there is a way in which there's not a core constituency uh, for performance studies. At a younger age, right? So it demands that those who work in the area of performance studies, and I, I would include myself and, and many others, you know, really have to sort of talk about its cool factor, right? You, you have to sort of really go out there and, you know, loudly proclaim like this subject matter, this discipline, this conversation, the set of conversations are going to change the way you think about the world, will have the potential to impact politics and do all these things because you really have to uh, kind of beat the drum loudly you know, to bring people to your discipline in a way that theater doesn't have to do.
2: Harvey makes an excellent point, which is that the efficacy versus aesthetics argument is still very much circulating in this conversation, even if we've sort of taken the gender politics out of it. We still often do come back to, efficacy versus entertainment, or do we still care about aesthetics, or do we only care about the cultural labor that performance does? Yeah, and I
1: absolutely. would really wonder I mean, if we if we could completely separate the, the gender politics, and I say this not so much for myself, but in reference to a, a piece that came out in The Guardian either yesterday or today, um, the talking about the ref and the Tef. Uh, right? So the research excellence framework and the teaching excellence framework for uh, British universities. And the, the critique there, and forgive me, I don't have the title off, off the top of my head, but the, the the one line that I thought was really significant is it is it, it towards the end of that article, there's, um, throughout, it's a critique of the emphasis on performance metrics and the measuring of, of scholarly worth according to these standardized uh, evaluation structures. But it is layered with critiques of theatrical performance and it continually holds up these evaluative measures as being equivalent to fantasy illusion. I think there's a picture uh, from an RSC production of the Tempest is like the photo that goes with the article and towards the end of it at the, in one of the final paragraphs, there's a reference to, you know, basically like, like dismissing the quote unquote, you know, uh, and this is actually a direct quote, the macho cult of performance. And, and so I was really struck with the, that, the sort of durability of that argument, even in a, in, a, in a slightly different context.
0: Well, I think performance studies has uh, one of the points that Bottoms makes is that you could read Schechner's antipathy towards theater as part of this very long current of anti-theatrical thinking and discourse. And that's I think that's probably a pretty compelling way to interpret this split. You know, there was something that Henry said about the way that the, you know, primary education is has not been retooled according to performance studies, and so that part of what's going on in graduate schools is is students sort of uh, having their minds blown by the broad spectrum concept and then rebelling against theater. But it's also, you know, when you read Schechner, there's this sense that we're going to get rid of all the BFA programs, we're going to get rid of all the theater majors; they're all going to be performance majors. It's going to be able. It's going to enable students to understand so much more and uh, think in so many ex- exciting ways. And that's the part of the essay that seems short-sighted or seems like it wasn't borne out by the kind of economic realities of undergraduate education, which is that the the students come from loving theater and they wander into our doors typically because they want to do theater. I don't know that that means that theater remains the kind of dominant part of the field I think that the theory that performance studies embraces the the cool factor what have you perhaps even the kind of you know a kind of residual heteronormative macho-ness there's something about it that to me still seems I mean that that panel with Rebecca Schneider and Peggy Phelan um and Daniel Sack um it, in a, in a way, it sort of underscored how much more people were interested in seeing performance theorists talk about what they're doing than, uh, you know, different segments of the of the conference. But I will point out that uh, a point made to me by a uh, Professor McGinley, who's actually responsible for more than half of the smart things that I say on this podcast. A point that she made to me in talking about that afterwards was that the appeal of performance studies is partly about the capaciousness of theory, which is to say that, there's just there are just segments of our field that aren't going to be able to get anything out of a, a panel on 19th century American theater um, or other sub segments of the way that theater gets sliced up. But that performance theory, that is something that we can all digest and think about in terms of our own objects. And so it it's not necessarily a kind of. Cultural difference, or a um, a sort of need to decide whether or not you're on the theory side or on the performance studies side, so much as it is that theory is something that we can all use.
2: I I would agree. Something that I talk about in the conclusion to the theater historiography collection that both uh, Harvey and Sarah have chapters in. It's a great book. Is (laughs) that that performance studies is primarily a, a method driven organization, uh, and theater studies is more of an object-driven discipline, so they're not really mutually exclusive. I see it as instead of subsuming one another, they're in a kind of state of mutual encompassment, right? If you start from a position of looking at the discipline of theater studies, I would say that while performance studies hasn't displaced it, it's come to occupy a spot as a recognized subfield that you kind of need to have to have a complete picture of theater studies. So it's like theater history or dramaturgy or dramatic criticism or performance studies. And if you're starting from the position of performance studies, which we also do, nobody's saying there's not a place for theater on the broad spectrum, but just that there's all this other stuff on the spectrum.
0: In terms of that perception that I mentioned earlier of theater becoming more and more marginal I I looked at um, theater journals list of dissertations in progress from this summer and I was surprised to find that not just the majority but I'd say a large majority of the (laughs) dissertation projects at least judging by their name seemed to have to do with theater I actually expected it not that not to be the case It was also an interesting fact that in that panel with Rebecca Schneider and Peggy Phelan, it ended up in a debate about a close reading of a line from Beckett's Endgame. So there's a kind of like, you know, cultural taproot of dramatic literature and theater nerddom that is still operative, even at that level of performance theory.
3: I wonder, just just, this conversation is making me think about another way of considering the rise of performance studies and I'm not sure if there's a basis to this at all so who knows Uh, but I I wonder if if part of the rise might emerge from an anxiety about the status um, or the centeredness of sort of theater PhDs within theater departments right so another way of putting it is the backlash against the MFA right so what happens when Theater programs become more, or or English programs become more centered around uh, practice, right? Yeah, and and your faculty, your faculty numbers increase with the number of MFAs in acting and directing and playwrights, and there's a thrall of coolness attached to the work that they do and how it impacts the world, you know. And then that begins to create a sort of a smaller slice of the pie, you know, for the for the PhD who used to be the person who taught acting and criticism. Uh, as well as directing, you know, under an older model of the academy. I mean, so is there a way in which performance studies then allows for what uh, Schechner argues for in new paradigms? This kind of broadly humanistic interdisciplinary approach that allows that single person to be the originator of multiple sites of engagement.
2: I think the other thing that's happening is that so many of us are fluent in both discourses, and so we're able to code switch depending on uh, the audience or the context, and so you're getting less kind of -of out-of-hand disparagement of the other side, right? There's just a lot more cross-pollination and circulation, and so uh, uh, unlike, say, when I was going on the job market 15 years ago and would encounter people who were openly contemptuous of the field in which I had earned my degree, There's a lot more give and take, uh, and I think civility now, to that conversation.
0: Well, why don't we turn on a dime from old debates in the field and a culture of emergent civility, to new and pressing dangers erupting out of the stream of history and causing uh, real concerns. I am talking, of course, about the uh, most recent presidential election. We have all been processing this with our students, with each other in one way or another. And we read Elisa Solomon's article, My Epistemological Crisis, Arts Criticism in the Times of Trump, So basically, how have you guys been processing this, and how have you been thinking about the way that it makes any aspect of our work in the field of theater and performance studies different looking ahead? Sarah, do you have a reaction to that?
1: Sure. So two quick reactions. I mean, the first is that uh, in rereading Solomon's article, the, the thing that really popped out Uh, to me again was the kind of uh, visceral reaction and thinking about this through I think she mentions Gamergate and just the the real kind of heightened vulnerability uh, that that these discourses are having on actual you know people and the way that they the freedoms they have to you know like live their lives in in various ways I'm thinking about you know the whole Pizzagate right attack and Uh, And real acts of violence uh, and and aggression on campuses and elsewhere. So that's, I mean, that's one thing that I've been talking a lot with my my students. Um, The other thing that I found really challenging in this in this conversation is is that is trying to keep a kind of open engagement and sensitivity and thoughtfulness for a variety of political positions. Without without falling into what seems to be a kind of dominant narrative that's emerging of, oh, we we need to listen to right the white midwestern voter and oh the the trials and tribulations of white men that have been you know ignored and you know I, I just find myself really struggling to to balance all of that and so I've found that you know in conversations with my students I'm constantly just like quoting and citing at them. You know, and I, I find that, you know, my language has become really inadequate, so I'm just constantly recommending books and finding essays and, and sort of throwing those at, at my students as a way of building up a kind of historical rhetorical fortress in which we can, you know, to help process what's going on and to and to think it through. But I, I don't know. I wonder if that's just a kind of uh, form of intellectual denial.
0: Yeah, I... Um You know, I've made notes of the types of reactions that I've heard of happening with um, with people who do what we do. And there seem to be these kind of near term immediate reactions like, you know, interrupting the curriculum and having a class day where we talk about the election. I did that personally Um, at University of Washington. They put a sign up on the I think the School of Theater office door announcing um, the department is a place of total inclusion, and we at uh, WashU have have taken that idea, and we have our own sign up. Um, there are I've also heard you know from faculty planning our season next year, you know, wanting to sort of think about the plays that are going to capture this moment of you know, I don't know how one behaves in a moment of cultural revanchism and threats to democratic and and welfare institutions. Those are all immediate reactions, but I wonder about the sort of longer-term horizons of our teaching and our research. Have you guys changed the way you're thinking about what you're writing or what you want to teach in the next few years?
1: Can I follow up on something you just said, panel? While while our you know we sort of mull on this, because one of the things that yes. I'm I'm finding really challenging, uh, and 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 uh, so again Solomon's essay is really great because it speaks to the emotion and the and the physical. Environment, right? Is that you know? Well, I think I know or can guess many of the the, the politics of my of, of of folks that I interact with, and and I'm sure they they think that they know mine. You know, I am also aware that there are non-monstrous people who, for whatever reasons, uh, did vote for for Trump, and so I'm I'm you know, as I think about it, particularly because I teach all undergraduates, right, and so. The, the the fact of the matter is that you know some of them that I interact with right voted for Trump and and f- for any number of reasons that I might be able to guess or might not be able to guess and and I, I really wonder like I mean you know this kind of inclusion like like there's such a it's such a uh, polarizing dichotomous balance sheet right so you know to say something generous on one side, is often seen as invalidating an experience a a real felt experience on the other and so I i would be curious to know like like in in very specific ways like you know i mean yes i'm sure that brecht is gonna you know pop up in lots of different places in lots of different ways as you know i i found myself citing rhinoceros many many times over the past you know couple of weeks but you know are there other ways that are you know ways to negotiate this
3: Yep. I mean, my sense of this, you know, as I guess we collectively try to process the election and, and its potential impact on what we do is to try to f- imagine sort of what is the specific result or consequence or effect on on theater at large. Right. And, and that's the thing that I have a hard time diagnosing. Right. It, it, it's difficult for me to look through sure uh, Trump's campaign rhetoric. Right. Or even his own sort of personal history uh to find anything that's conv- anything that convinces me that he's sort of anti-arts, right? Uh, so I mean obviously we can look toward various moments of of a Republican House and then arts funding with the arts funding being cut for the NEA, you know, to sort of have concerns, but sort of to look specifically at Trump, you know, that's something that I don't sort of see evidence of. But then what happens is you can look at his rhetoric and say, well what does it mean to have this person who is now the president elect uh who uh, you know, can uh, say these things about um, women who, who, who can surround themselves with people who are uh, hostile to uh, LGBT rights, uh, and then to think about our discipline and uh, our field of theater and to realize how, you know, at, at most universities, uh, theater communities are majority female, right? You know, to think about uh, the entertainment industry and theater specifically as being a place uh, that has been. Um, You know sort of led and inclusive of diversity uh of all sorts and i think that that's where we have to sort of wrestle with that i mean there's a way in which the arts themselves may not be under threat you know but the artists you know are uh and that's where we need to i think find the language to uh respond in an effective manner
2: i've been thinking somewhat about you know the the theorization of trump certainly uh this notion that um, you know, arguably, he's a performance president, but honestly, that doesn't interest me <laughs> all that much. I, I think, uh, as panelists, you said it feels a little, a little bit like theorizing as a means of denial. Mostly, what I've been focusing on is you know, I'm an administrator at a state university in a red state, uh, so I am for lack of a better word a straight white male authority figure for most of the people in my sphere and and I'm their interface with the state and so I've been spending a lot of time thinking about what can I say or do to kind of stand between the state and my people and to make sure that they know that we continue to be a safe, inclusive space that they can continue to do the art that they want to do, do the scholarship that they want to do, do the activism that they want to do uh, without worrying that the university is going to come down on them or fail to protect them the way we always have. Yeah.
0: Um, Harvey, you know, you do mention that there's not sort of direct evidence to suggest that Trump will be anti-arts, but his the cabinet picks have been so far indicative of a desire to reward people who've been loyal to him. Uh, Many of the people who were loyal to him were arch conservatives. I personally think, I, I mean, part of what is difficult about this is I think we don't know what's coming. One of the patterns to the reactions has been that I think people are critiquing each other on the left and in liberal spheres for, you know, one type of rhetoric or the lack of another type of political rhetoric as though we were the ones engineering the messages for the election. But I do think that, you know, there there is this kind of epistemological crisis with many dimensions like what Elisa Solomon talks about. There is a, a sense that the Enlightenment tradition, its elevation of fact and rational discourse is under attack, but also that we didn't know that this was possible. We were dumbfounded and we and on a further level we don't know what's coming so this is all a long-winded way of saying that it wouldn't surprise me if arts funding funding for academic research at the federal level became a site of contestation and political showmanship that in spite of the fact that the president-elect might not have any reason to want to defund the nea or the neh that there could be an emerging politics that backs that up and then you know what Henry has talked about in terms of wanting to stand up and sort of protect both our students you know physically and emotionally and intellectually um, but also to protect the values of of the um, liberal arts university I think these are vital things that we have to figure out how we're going to do and I think being willing to restate and recommit ourselves to open inquiry, open freedom of expression, um, but also social praxis and, and protest, things that many of us sh- espouse and, and value, but are likely to come under attack in this next period of history. I think that's important as well.
1: At the same time, I will say, you know, uh, and I feel a bit like this is like my, my new favorite joke, which is, you know, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? Um, I was like, you know, putting all that aside, um, you know, this is kind of a, a fun moment, if I can call it that, in terms of reasserting or perhaps newly asserting the significance of exactly what we were talking about in the first segment, which is the necessity to draw on both theater and performance studies methodologies as a way of understanding what's happening our kind of current contemporary moment. I mean, if... If, if Trump is a performance presidency and if we are in a moment that is, you know, so-called post-fact and, and post, you know, uh, rational enlightenment and where, you know, clearly, right? I mean, like the language of, of political theater, I think, has, has never been so often and, and appropriately invoked. You know, what are the what is the response to that? You know, like, how do you make an argument when facts are off the table? So it seems to me like, OK, well, actually, that's a moment where where performance becomes and performance analysis and, and critical analysis becomes like really the the one cultural currency we now all share, which is that we're all deeply. And, and I think this is also tied in with with, you know, the significance of social media in this moment, both for its ability to. You know, algorithmically curate a very selective uh, source of information to you, as if it is everything, but but it's not. Um, at the same moment that we are all carefully cultivating and projecting and performing, uh, you know, dynamic social identities in multiple spaces simultaneously, you know, all of this seems to be like if if performance is not the lingua franca of our current moment and the and the the best way to understand what's happening socially, politically. And culturally, I I don't know what is, and I don't know who's better suited to negotiate this and talk it through with people than us.
0: Yeah, I, I think I'll confess that that part of Elisa Solomon's essay and that sort of thought, which is that, you know, we are the ones who have the conceptual tools and the language to dissect performance. And so we can be a unique source of resistance. I'm not sure I'm compelled by that, because I think that Performance scholarship on political communication and political performance was robust before the election, you know, good books being written on Reagan, articles in American theater on campaigning. It's not that I would say that we need to abandon that. I think it's wonderful and that we should pursue those topics with the same energy that we would before because they're important and interesting. But in terms of what we do, what's more or less proprietary to our field, I've been thinking more about rhetoric. Which, you know, was a mainstay of communication studies uh, before the sort of broad transition to performance studies. And that I have wondered if our students and we as faculty members aren't uh, less sharp than we could be in terms of recognizing argumentative fallacies, in terms of studying um, the art of persuasion possibly because it's harder to persuade people now, but I've wondered if that's not a part of what we do that we shouldn't pay more attention to. In other words, it's it, it's often in theater departments or communication departments where you can get a class in public speaking and rhetoric and argumentation. I took one of those when I was an undergraduate. Um, I've wondered about putting one of those on the books um, here at Wash U.
2: Well, I think that another part of this is a recognition That this notion of activist performance, of performance and and using our theatrical skills to change the culture, I think sometimes we've defaulted to this assumption that it would always change the culture in a progressive way. And I think we've had a spectacular vindication of the fact that that method is ideologically neutral uh, and that uh, those same tools can be used to move the culture in another direction. Absolutely. This
1: is the ambivalence of Benjamin's footnote number twelve, right? It yeah, befits the actor and the dictator, right? The new, in the age of mechanical reproduction. Yes, but but
0: but but are the performant the, you know, the performance skills that helped get Trump elected and that are behind this spectacular failure of the left? I don't know that those were were those being tr- taught at Wharton, or you know, is it was it on the job practice of reality television that honed those communication skills?
1: See, but this is also I where I think, like, the rhetoric is, like, is, yes, it's, it's true that that's significant, and, and, uh, and we've had that for a while, but it's, it's rhetoric in 140 characters, you know, right. and I really, I mean, I think if you really want to make an intervention, and you really want to, like, take up social, political performance praxis, it, it has to be in a mediated environment. Right. This is not this is not about face to face discourse and it's not about like live, you know, uh, uh, performance spaces in the way that we practiced them previously, which is not to dismiss the efficacy. I mean, you know, I I mean, right now, I I whatever solace I take in the political world, I take from like the true heroes at Standing Rock. Uh, and and the P- and the water protectors and and the American veterans who have joined you know with with the tri- the tribes there. I mean that's just I mean that like brings me to tears to think about it too too deeply, you know. And so it's not to say that like bodies in space can't be incredibly powerful, but I do think that that when you're talking about these kinds of global shifts and and what you know what. Henry points to is this, you know, these ideologically neutral and malleable mechanisms. I do very sincerely root those in Benjamin because it is about the, the the means of mechanical reproduction. It is about technological mediation that makes them uh, uh, effective on a mass scale.
3: It, it's also it's it's the combination of the two, right? So it's, you know, it is mediated messaging, right, uh, and mediatized messaging, but it's also a skillful use of the live rally, right, you know, which creates this sort of alternate utopian performance. There, there's something about 10,000, 15,000 people in an auditorium chanting, make America great again, lock her up and other things that becomes this sort of revelatory experience uh, that uh, excites passion, that um, motivates them, m- motivates a person to vote. And I think that that's the shocking part of it, right? That, You know, sort of using this sort of live performance scenario could create an energized community, you know, that's bonded and connected uh, with a politics that um, could ultimately be damaging to a democracy. Right. You know, and I think that's the thing that we couldn't fully anticipate. Right. And which is kind of what Henry was saying. You know, and then there's also the power of celebrity. Right. You have to think about, um, you know, what is that it factor? Uh, when it enters into politics uh, from a person who doesn't have any political experience. So it's all those things that are rooted in performance uh, that we're trying to wrestle with.
0: Well, I think these are gonna be um, among the issues that we're gonna be working on and thinking about and talking about for the next few years at least. Finally, today we wanted to talk about uh, what we're calling academetrics. This briefly is a topic that arose on a winding path Uh, few episodes ago in drafts we talked about the idea of fantasy academic department and we toyed with the idea of actually doing a segment where we drafted our own fantasy academic departments and this was one this became one of several terrible ideas i had that my co-hosts wisely talked me out of but it got us onto the topic of real life fantasy and academic department which is to say the way that university administrators are using statistics in a way not unlike fantasy sports to assign value to individual players in the academic game. Now, of course, this is something that uh, works out differently in theater and performance studies because our field has some wrinkles to it. We consider Uh, artistic practice and production to be part of the central activity that we do, and it encompasses uh, research and teaching and service, but it is hard to get on a stat line. Henry, what have you been seeing in the way that universities are tracking academic productivity, um, and how do you see that from a theater and performance studies point of view?
2: Well, what we're seeing is more and more universities are tracking statistics on faculty productivity, particularly research universities. And there are a variety of ways to do this. Google Scholar is publicly available. Um, There are other citation indexes which are publicly available. There are also proprietary companies that put together this data and Basically, sell it to administrators. The largest one of these is called Academic Analytics, and it grew out of the National Research Council's uh, survey of doctoral programs from about 10 years ago, um, and then was taken into a private nonprofit form and is supported basically by subscriptions from provosts like mine. And I should begin by saying I don't think metrics are all bad. Uh, I think that when you're trying to to make decisions about uh, far-flung things in the university, it can be in some ways helpful because it actually allows these, these large uh, data aggregators allow us to do things like make discipline-specific comparisons that we couldn't make before. So instead of comparing my theater department to my English department to say who's publishing more, I can compare my theater department to other theater departments around the country who are all part of this service. And that's more of an apples-to-apples comparison. Um, And for small units in fields where rankings don't really happen, this also can give us evidence for advocacy. I can tell you that I was able to get uh, funding for a faculty hire in one of the units with which I work, in part by convincing the provost that if we brought in this particular senior person, it would immediately move the program from somewhere <laughs> around fifteenth to somewhere around sixth nationally. And, you know, then the guy's like, oh, I can get a top ten another top ten program for my collection by simply committing one faculty salary. I'm gonna do that every time. So I think it can be used for good. I think the danger is that the statistics that are out there are at this point are deeply flawed. And it would be like, to use your fantasy sports analogy, uh, it'd be like trying to run a fantasy football league where the only statistics you were tracking were safeties and field goals. Um, uh, (laughs) It would tell you something, but it wouldn't give you a complete picture of what's really going on. Um, And in theater that's especially problematic because the At this moment, nobody is doing a decent job of tracking performance, tracking theatrical performance metrics, right? There's a lot of tracking of books, of articles, and those things work okay as long as that's your comparison point. That is to say, it's kind of intuitive. There's no version of this in which Marvin Carlson isn't a first-round draft pick.
0: <laughs> I thought we weren't going to do this. I thought we weren't going right. to do that. Well, what I'm saying department. is that
2: <laughs> that every that that almost all the indexes and things that you look at tend to come up with, by and large, the same group of of people in the first tier, second tier, and so on. And by and large, these it tracks with probably what you would think just walking around faster. It seems to me
0: that a, a big part of this is that it's actually to the advantage of small departments and quirky departments like theater and performance departments, because rather than having to continually air out the same arguments about why we're part of the public face of the university because we produce a season and there are untold number of contact hours with students because we produce a season, in other words, in, in, a, in instead of having to continually explain why we're different and we do things that are hard to measure, you can compare our departments to other departments that have the same, a comparable mission.
2: Yes, the tricky part and where you have to really educate your administrators is that in theater and performance studies, the statistics, how well the statistics rate your department or an individual are driven largely by the mix of how much publication versus how much other types of creative activity the faculty are doing. So the sort of department level statistics tend to skew in favor of those programs like performance studies at NYU, which has no production operation and barely has an undergraduate program. Uh, That's fairly new, their undergraduate program. So for a long time it was graduate only. So the faculty have more time and more incentive to publish the kinds of things that get counted. Um, And it skews away from even a place like the L School of Drama, which most people would put right up there, but uh, in which the faculty are mostly involved in things that don't show up in these statistics.
1: I was just—I was thinking about it because I was thinking, like, if you really wanted to move the needle, it would—it would result in these kind of wildly distorted departments, right, where people are—you know—had a lot of people publishing, but very I mean like very few classes right like you know so I'm thinking like especially at an undergraduate institution which is not on the rankings of the you know I was like I'm like oh you know we could totally boost that right and like me and like everybody else teaching finer and finer distinctions of theater history and performance theory would have like you know three students a piece you know and it was just so it just struck me like like you know the way in which this would privilege in very odd 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 ways that wouldn't track with other missions, but
3: and I mean, there's also a way in which uh, a lot of these sort of metrics are center publishing and they're inspired by the sciences, right? So it's you know, like, you know, how many books, how many articles, what's the citation count per per faculty member, per article, you know, like, you know how many publications exist uh, on average per member of your faculty, right? So what happens is, as Henry was saying, you know, you, you begin to lose live and body performance in this right so how do you measure how do you account for practice uh, you know and you know so in the model of the theater program that is a series of historians and critics who write articles and books you know they you know they, they you know they are much higher because not only are there more publications there's also more publications per faculty member you know than other programs where there is maybe 40 faculty but five historians so uh, the per-faculty member average is going to be a lot lower. Henry, from your, you're
0: now at a position where you can look across departments at KU and also in other schools. Do you get the sense that theater and performance studies is more or less book-based, more or less article-based than some other fields?
2: I would say that if you look at the weighting schemes that academic analytics, for example, applies, but their default weighting schemes, which are actually based on the NRC, which is actually based on surveying people in the field, that your kind of individual faculty productivity score is based about 50% on book publication, about 25% on article publication, and about uh, 25% on grants and awards, and that's I don't know if that's good or bad, but I would say that we are, what I would say is that the way the system is set up encourages departments to uh, encourage faculty to be more book-based. And of course, part of the problem is it's all quantitative, right? It makes no distinction. One article counts as one article, whether it's in Theater Survey or Theater Journal, which have 10 to 20% acceptance rates, or whether it's in some more obscure a uh, less competitive journal, as long as it has an ISSN number, it's going to show up in this index as one article. And similarly, the book can be with Duke University Press, or it can be with some place that uh, maybe doesn't do quite as rigorous peer review, it shows up as one book. Um, So there there are problems.
0: Yeah, this is literally the problem with fantasy academic department, that, that if you were trying to come up with some scoring scheme, you have to reduce things to stats. And it's not as though it's a problem that's uniquely restricted to the fact that we, many of us in the field, do extra labor in producing a season or in teaching a class that just isn't. Counted either easily as research or teaching or service, but that the the weird sort of perverse incentives to publish a high number of less labor-intensive articles in a bunch of journals that are easier to get placed in. I mean, no one would argue that that's what you want your faculty to do, and and we all know cases of really excellent faculty who have one field-changing book, and everyone knows that book and it's amazing, but on that statistic, you know, through academic analytics, that person's contribution to a field is going to look rather paltry compared to that reality.
2: And we could get at it with citation counts. And in the sciences, they use citation counts to get at that. But the problem is that the data isn't there yet for the arts and the humanities. And in particular, they don't have a good way of counting citations in books. The citation indexes mostly are based on crawlers that read articles. And so in a book driven field the citation counts are, you know, pretty much useless because they miss so much of of what people are doing.
3: And, and and I will say and this is just my 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 read of the field in the area of theater history and criticism, you know, we're we're not very good at citing people. Like I mean what what I mean by it's like I mean I think that our field tends to minimally cite. We 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 we, we assume, "Oh, everyone knows" Uh, twice behaved you know behavior something like that uh, and and then you won't cite Chechner or you won't cite like the 50 other people who've kind of you know engaged that and developed it you know over the last 25 years, you know. Whereas in the sciences, there's much more of a rigorous uh, commitment toward uh, citing and signaling, you know, where you're influencing and where your influences are coming from, you know. And I think that's why, if you look at even the existing citations, noting uh, Henry's comment about the sort of poor ability to pull citations from books, you know, we tend to undersite. Like even our most sort of significant books in our field have underwhelming citation numbers uh, compared to other disciplines.
1: Well, we also—I mean, those are—that's partly disciplinary, right? I mean, you know, so I'm married to a social scientist, right? And and when the social sciences cite, you know, you don't have to rhetorically, you know, include a quote, the the background, the significance in the body of the right. You're right. just like I'm talking about this idea, and then you put in parentheses, like you can put like you know, you know, twelve different publications, or at least four or five different publications, each of which has four or five, you know or more authors. you know and so in in one brief you know idea, you know you've got like 18 people who get credit for being part of the building blocks of that idea. I also wonder to what extent our own kind of you know cult of novelty and and innovation and coinage and you know de- de- desire to to sort of, you know be at the at the, the forefront of, of a particular idea doesn't also lead us to search for, a particular phrasing uh, that would be seen as novel or or in a new way rather than rely overly on an existing, you know, body of terminology. And, I mean to I mean this I think is one of the, the, the sort of animating things behind the the performance in media taxonomies book that I did with, with Jen Parker Starbuck and David Saltz, which is just to kind of like once you it's just like like, like can we find a method which doesn't require us to come up with new New phrasing and terminology, you know, because we have a lot of it out there. We still keep trying to kind of generate it every time we see a a slightly new performance.
0: With that, why don't we uh, turn to our final segments? Let's talk about our drafts. These listeners, if you're new to the podcast, are our thoughts in progress, the cool things we've been reading or thinking about, the things that we want to react to in a
3: smaller scale. Um, Harvey, do you want to start us off with your draft? Yeah. So uh, my draft ties into this conversation. I'm trying to figure out what theater will look like in the age of Trump. So I've been uh, sort of going through NEA appropriations over the last, I don't know, 25 years, 30 years, trying to see, you know, what the allocations have been uh, dependent upon different political variables but also looking at who's in the, like who controls uh, both houses of congress who's in the white house uh, to try to get some sense of where art funding arts funding is headed um as a way to write this essay that i will script in a couple of weeks wow
0: but i would imagine it's pretty hard to predict <laughs> as we talked about
3: it's in it's, second it's difficult i will say the surprising thing is that arts funding uh Declined when Democrats were in the White House and had uh, uh, Congress, which was surprising. Wow. I was surprised to see that. You know, but I think part of it is that it was tied to the sense of fiscal responsibility, right? You know, the think about the sequester that happened. Think about uh, Bill Clinton aiming to balance the budget initially. You know, so it's like I think that there was a commitment toward uh, decreasing federal ex- expenditures across the board as a way of trying to sort of restart the economy. And then once the economy was restarted, then it became no longer a Democratic-controlled house. It became like Republican-controlled. So, so I think that's something that I'm trying to measure for in my review. Wow. So maybe the, in, the, in the way that Republicans are,
0: because they're deficit hawks, they get to run giant deficits, <laughs> maybe the Republican administration will balloon funding for artists and scholars. Let's hope. Who knows? Um, (laughs) Uh, Henry, do you have a draft you want to share?
2: I've been thinking a lot about the success bias in our field. Um, I read a lot of things for theater topics. I'm on the editorial board. And the overwhelming majority of submissions to theater topics are, I did this project in my theater or with my (laughs) class, and it was enormously successful. Um, And in fact, I would say that the ratio of successful projects to unsuccessful projects that are written up for Theatre Topics is about 100 to (laughs) 0. And yet we all know from our own personal experience that it's often the project that crashes and burns that teaches us the most. So I'm in conversations right now with the editors of Theatre Topics about possibly a special section where we actively solicit write-ups of failed projects. That's a great idea. It
0: Reminds me of the that classic This American Life episode, the fiasco episode about the worst production of Peter Pan you can imagine. <laughs> Not that that's exactly what you're soliciting, Sarah. What do you have on draft?
1: Well, I'm I'm sort of in the the throes of teaching uh, overload, or or about to exit the 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 throes of teaching uh, overload. So I've been thinking a lot about, uh, and I actually would love your feedback on this, or perhaps from our listeners on our Facebook page or elsewhere. Uh, about what what makes a really good final exam question. You know, like what is it? And I, cuz I, I think at this point I feel fairly confident that I know, you know, what makes a good paper topic, right? And mainly I know that from seeing the kinds of papers that different paper topic prompts will yield, but the exam question is always for me, you know, I kind of come back to it is always kind of a perplexing thing to write. And I'm 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 actually not writing any I'm not I have no final exams this this semester, but I'm curious you know, what, what people think of it. Like, what constitutes a, a really good essay question or fi- exam question?
2: I'd say it's one that solicits an answer that the student couldn't possibly have given if they hadn't taken the course.
0: Let me put my draft in the mix. I just got done teaching our intro to graduate studies seminar here for uh, first semester students in our MA program, and we always finish that uh, seminar with a, a unit where we read new books in the field, and we read both Anthea Kraut's choreographing copyright and Elizabeth Maddock Dillon's New World Drama, both of which are big books that have taken home big awards in the past couple of years. And reading them back-to-back was great because there is this sort of connection by virtue of copyright law. Elizabeth Maddock Dillon, she narratizes the um, period of the Atlantic Performative Commons as sort of beginning with the regicide of Charles I and the enclosure of the Commons, the old public lands. And then she says that this ends with the Astor Place riots, but also, co- you know, coincidentally, the emergence of copyright law being applied to performance texts. And so reading that right after having read Anthea Kraut's book, which is about the ways that women and uh, choreographers of color strategically used the field of, of copyright, but, you know, not attached to texts, but to choreographic works as a sort of strategy The books link up uh, nicely, and there's a sort of, I think, interesting kind of article missing between them uh, that someone should write about the way that discursive copyright in performance and embodied or, or choreographic copyright entails perhaps a sort of afterlife of the performative commons. Guys, especially Henry, thank you so much for your time. Listeners, thank you for listening. Uh, Review us on iTunes, give us feedback on the Facebook page, and uh, stay tuned for the next edition. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for ONTAP, and on Twitter at ONTAP Podcast.